service and welcome to our Live Through the Lens live webinar. I acknowledge that today I'm on Ghana land and recognise the Ghana people as the traditional and continuing custodians of the land. Since the closure of our libraries and venues, we've been working hard to still connect and engage with you through our Live Through the Lens series of adult programs delivered differently. We had to reimagine how to bring you the author talks that you've grown to expect from us, so thank you for joining us today. This evening we meet special guest author Indy Mimi, a recovering blogger, impending novelist and compulsive short story writer, as she talks about her debut novel The Spill, which was awarded the 2019 Penguin Literary Prize. Please feel free at any time during the presentation to type questions you have for Indy into the Q&A text box on your screen and I'll ask her these at the end of her talk. Now please sit back, grab a cup, cup or a glass of wine and please welcome Indy. Hello everybody, thanks for joining me tonight. Um, I'm just going to use some of my high-end technical skills by sharing my screen. Don't pre prepare to be amazed. Um, here we go. All right, so before I properly start, um, there's something important that I need to do and that's to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm sitting on at the moment, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I particularly want to do this because storytelling has always been such an integral part of their daily lives on this land, this land where I now live, where I write and I tell my own stories. So here we go. Be prepared to be amazed. PowerPoint wizardry. For I am Imbinimi, author type person. I promise there won't be too many bad jokes in this. Um, people are talking about The Spill, um, saying that it's my first novel, a debut novel, but it's actually not. My very first novel was actually published when I was five or six in my annual school magazine. Um, I remember very clearly, it's, it's actually one of my earliest and clearest memories um, of the pride um, that I felt and the satisfaction from uh, writing a whole book and then having that uh, printed. Uh, it was a couple of years later that I realised that it wasn't a whole book, it was actually just a single sentence. But what a sentence. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a reading now for you. The funny planet. One day a man went to a planet and explored it and a rocket came and a funny turkey came out and asked if he would join in a party in his rocket. Imbinimi, year one. So uh, from an early age, I was hooked, hooked to this idea of being a writer. I also love the fact that it was a funny turkey with a capital T that came out of the, uh, the rocket. Um, for me, that's like the ultimate kind of plot twist. I was playing with genre even at a very young age. Um, and then I entered the teen years um, that they were largely spent journaling miserably writing tortured and probably very torturous poetry in between scowling and locking myself in my room. Um, this photos uh, are some of the actual diaries um, between the years that I wrote them pretty much daily between 1983 and 1991. Uh, that's eight years of word vomit. Luckily, uh, only a handful survive to this day. Oops, see, what did I say? Wizardry. Um, okay, so then, 
Then I went, um, after I finished university uh, uh, in Perth, I went and lived in Japan, where I was incredibly lonely and wrote an earnest and probably quite terrible novella on a MacBook that uh, was a PowerBook 150 uh, like this, which is more house brick than it is computer. Um, and the, uh, the novel was very, well, the novella, sorry, was very derivative, I think. I was trying to be an Australian Jeanette Winterson and uh, I, I've, I have reread it and I have blushed a lot while I've been rereading it. But I remember my dad reading it and telling me that he thought that I'd found my bliss and that was something that I've carried with me to this day. And, you know, it also made me feel like I was on my way. But alas, I then entered my own personal dark ages. Between the age of um, 25 and 37, I wrote virtually nothing except for a couple of short uh, film exercises that I did for a screenwriting course I was doing in London. Um, so I was busy trying to have a career, uh, which I failed at, um, and I got married and then I had three kids. And all that time, I still identified as a writer, even though I did zero actual writing. But, you know, I think feeling like a writer is kind of a good part of the journey, although it helps to actually do some actual writing too. Um, then after my third child was born, I, I started writing again. A friend of mine, uh, after I'd written one too many long involved uh, anecdotal posts on Facebook, pulled me aside uh, and suggested that I might like to uh, stop clogging up her feed and uh, start a blog. Um, so after I Googled what is blog, I started um, actively blogging at Not Drowning Mothering uh, pretty much uh, five times a week, um, although that's slowly petered out um, between 2008 and 2011. I often describe the process of writing that blog with young children as um, writing with small children dangling off me like Christmas ornaments. Um, it was like that. I would get up at five and I would uh, try and get an hour of solid writing before anyone woke up. And then I'd be editing and hitting publish um, while still trying to get the kids ready for school or kindergarten. But I think this was a really important part of my writing training um, because I developed this kind of muscle that allowed me to use whatever window of opportunity I was given um, to write. So it's still how I write to this day. I write in short, intense bursts. And, you know, over the course of that blog, while it was active, I wrote over 270,000 words. So, you know, that's like maybe four, four novels worth. Um, and, and, but then I eventually stopped. Um, I ran out of steam. Um, also, I went through a divorce with my first husband and suddenly this life that I was writing about in a very ha-ha funny kind of way sort of felt a bit too personal and painful to share. And, and I also had this kind of belief that maybe the blog would be this bridge into doing what I really wanted to do, um, and that was to write novels. Um, and I, uh, I only ever got the attention of publishers who were sort of non-fiction publishers who wanted me to turn the blog into a book, and that wasn't something that I was interested in doing. I should add here that I forgot to flag at the beginning that every time I give um, one of these presentations, I do include a slide that is completely a lie, like just a complete outright lie. We haven't hit that slide yet, 
but it's coming. And I wonder if you'll be able to guess which one it is. I'll keep you on your toes. Um, all right, so then, then I, I, I put the blog aside and I decided it's time to write long form. Um, I wrote the first paragraph of my first manuscript in the Cornucopia restaurant in Dublin in July 2013 when I was visiting there um, with my now husband, second husband. Um, it was actually a whole other year before I wrote the second paragraph of my first manuscript, but we won't go into that. Um, this is actually a photo of me taken in June 2018. So that was five years and three manuscripts after writing that first paragraph. Um, there I am standing outside that same restaurant with my son on the left about to photobomb. Look at him, he's waiting so patiently to ruin my photo. Um, when this photo was taken, I was still nine months away from winning the Penguin Literary Prize. So you must be wondering, how did I get there? How did I get from that first paragraph in 2013 to winning the Penguin Literary Prize um, six years later? Here is the, the, the secret to my success. My spreadsheet, I submitted a lot. I also wrote a lot, but I submitted a lot. Um, this isn't even the full spreadsheet, it's probably about a third or maybe half of it. Um, I recorded every submission, whether it was to a prize or to competition or to a publisher or a literary agent. And then, you know, I tracked things like the announcement dates um, for the results. And see, see all the grey in the left-hand column? That's all my rejections. The yellow was where I was long or shortlisted and the green are my successes. In this case, I think those greens are short story competitions. Um, I always tell people who want to write and want to get published that behind every success is at least 100 rejections, and it certainly was the case for me. But it also wasn't a straightforward path to publication um, for me. Um, I had a few detours along the way. By the end of 2017, I'd had a few too many grey, unsuccessful cells in my spreadsheet and I pivoted long before pivoting became so hot right now. Um, so as an early adopter of the pivot, I turned back um, to writing short stories, um, which is something I hadn't done for 25 years. Uh, the last short story I'd written was in university. Um, I, I did this because I was hoping to reconnect with my love of writing and maybe even have a couple of wins. So. Uh, even though it had been over 25 years since I'd last written a short story, I was astounded when I started getting shortlisted and even winning some prizes. And this photo of me grinning, grinning like, <laughs> grinning like I don't even know how to explain that grin, um, is just after I'd won um, a first prize at the Borondara Literary Awards here in Melbourne. So by the end of 2018, I'd had so much success and so many grinning opportunities um, that I decided to put my three manuscripts aside and focus on building up a short story collection um, in 2019. And I had almost completely forgotten that I'd entered the Penguin Literary Prize when I got the email saying that I'd been shortlisted. But before we go into that more, um, I've got another detour. Around the same time um, when I was sort of focusing on short stories, some, something changed in me. And to explain this, I have to go back a couple of years to 2015 when I started working alongside these two magnificent human beings. Um, that's me overacting on the left. Um, now, only the one in the middle is actually relevant to this story. So sorry, Tim, I, I do love you, but you're not part of this story. 
Um, the magnificent human being in the middle is Emily Collier. Um, we were both, we, at the time, we were both writers and we, we swapped war stories about our disappointments and our wins and our plans for the future. And early October 2015, I was feeling pretty cocky. I'd had some good luck with my first manuscript and I was feeling really close to getting published. I don't know why I felt that, because I wasn't. But in that moment of optimism, I suggested to Emily that we should both um, make a, we should make a pact that if we both achieved certain goals that we set out for ourselves within the next year, we would get matching tattoos. We're standing next to the microwave in our small office. Um, and, um, and I remember telling her that I thought the ampersand, the end symbol was a, a suitably beautiful and rightly symbol. And we agreed and we shook hands. And then three weeks later, Emily found out she had breast cancer. And her focus completely changed. It moved away from writing and, and necessarily um, onto her treatment. And as she was going through her treatment, she confided to me that she thought she might not return to writing um, even after her treatment had ended. I tried to be supportive, but I felt a bit worried for her. I mean, it was one thing to be a writer who didn't write, and I had done a lot of that, as we know. Um, but to be a writer who no longer said that they even wanted to write. Anyway, I... Uh, I'm glad to say the story has a happy ending. I want you to know that Emily finished her treatment and is now in remission. And, you know, she started to write about her treatment and then she started to write about other things and then more and more. And she came back fully to writing and she's now doing her PhD at RMIT. Um, through Emily's journey, I realized something really important that the symbol of the ampersand that we'd chosen for ourselves was not about achieving a particular goal, but it was about the commitment to writing. It was about committing ourselves to the writing we'd always, always done, the writing that we would always do. Um, and I think even though ne neither of us had achieved those goals that we originally set for ourselves, um, it was incredibly important to us both that after almost two years, um, after we'd made that initial pact, we went and got the tattoos anyway. And here we are, ta-da! For the record, it hurt a lot. I'm not going to have another tattoo, I can tell you. And I'll give you one more photo. Um, uh, you, I wonder if you can guess which one is the actual tattoo and which is just a novelty stamp we had for my friend Jane's birthday. Anyway, so before um, I, can, I went on to win the Penguin Literary Prize, I still had one more detour to take. Yes, I did a seven-week intensive in advanced astronautness at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, Texas um, in late 2018. And there I am, there front and center, very proud of having completed that seven week intensive. <clears throat> All right. And now we've come to winning the Penguin Literary Prize. Just to recap, I'd given up on my novels for the moment, but had made a renewed commitment to writing. I was a freshly inked badass, um, ready to, to commit to my short story collection when I got the news that I'd been shortlisted. I was one of five shortlisted um, writers out of a total of about 400 manuscripts. And then I had to wait. Um, anyone who's ever um, submitted anything for uh, uh, anything 
you know what that's like. You're hitting refresh on your email every five minutes and you're always trying to second guess when the news is actually going to come in. You say, oh, the announcement date's the 17th of March, but will they tell us on the day or they tell us the day before? Or will it be a week in advance or does the winner already know and I'm just waiting and hoping in vain? So um, there's also a little part of me that has a little kind of moment of sadness when it reaches five o'clock on a Friday, because you know that between five o'clock on a Friday and sort of mid-morning on a Monday, you're not going to receive any good news. So I had entered that small black hole of email on a weekend. Um, and I was a Sunday afternoon and I was idly checking my email while my eldest stepdaughter was describing the plot of The Shining to her sister. Um, and I, uh, before I kind of knew what I was doing, I had opened an email from Penguin publisher Meredith Kernow. Um, and I read the rather coy words of, Dear Imbi, how do you feel about winning the Penguin Literary Prize? And I gasped so loudly that my stepdaughter thought she just bought the ending of The Shining for me, but she hadn't. Um, and for the record, in answer to Meredith's question, I felt really, really, really good about winning the Penguin Literary Prize. And I continue to feel really good about it right to this very day. Um, we abandoned all of our plans for that Sunday afternoon and went out to celebrate instead. Um, and here is a photo uh, I took myself in the bathroom um, when I went to the bathroom at the restaurant. It was the first time I'd actually seen my face um, since I'd won. And I just thought, I have to capture this feeling. I, I, I want to remember how I felt. And there I am. Um, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty hard to hold that in. I had to actually sit on the news and hide this feeling from everybody uh, for a couple of weeks, which is pretty hard for someone like me because I'm a natural oversharer, as I'm sure you can see from that photo, full of emotions. Um, and then I flew to Adelaide on the 17th of March to receive um, the prize at the Leading Edge uh, Books Conference. And so here is another photo I took just before I walked into the hotel. And here I am with my friend Kate Larson, who's dropping me off. Um, yep, that feeling, there it is again, it's about to burst forth. Um, and then I went to get the prize. So I had thought I was just going to stand on stage and smile and wave. But as we walked into the room, Meredith Kernow, my now publisher and convener of the prize, casually turned to me and said, oh, would you like to say a few words? Like completely panicked because, um, you know, being a writer, I like to write things first, um, not to speak off the cuff. Um, but when I saw all the booksellers, all the independent booksellers um, in the room who would be selling my book in the future in their stores, I realised this is where it begins. This is where I have to stand up and or step up and be a capital A author. So I stood at the lectern and I babbled incoherently for it felt like hours, but it was probably only a couple of minutes. And then I ended my speech by waving cheerfully to the crowd and saying, it's nice to meet you all, kind of exactly in that tone. So my kids still give me a lot of uh, crap about that. Anyway, so then what happened next? You know, um, it's March 2019. Um, I've won this prize. Um, it's all very exciting. Well, the thing that happened next was the editing process. And that's quite a long drawn out process, um, uh, particularly with a big publisher like Penguin, where, you know, they've got a lot of titles that they're getting ready for publication. So my Noel had to join the queue. 
So first we had the stru structural edit, um, and that's kind of a, uh, I did that in sort of May, May 2019, it's big picture stuff. This is where you might do a really, like a big restructure or change endings or even add or delete characters. Um, so my structural edit was reasonably light. I feel like I got a B plus for my um, structural edit. It consisted of an email from Meredith with eight questions and a lightly marked up Word document. And um, I was really lucky. I had a two week residency um, in, at Varuna in the Blue Mountains, thanks to um, a fellowship that I got from the Henry Handel Richardson Society. Um, so I was able to kind of use a lot of that time and space to work on this. And someone had told me it was really good practice to read everything out loud before you submit to make sure you know, the language is flowing. And um, I thought it was really good advice. I did spend the whole two weeks reading my work out loud in my, my studio. Um, I felt a bit pretentious, but anyway, um, it certainly was uh, probably a, as weird a feeling as it is just sitting here in this room giving this presentation to a computer screen. But that's, you know, by the by. Um, so it was really good advice to do that, but it was totally the wrong time for me to do that because what I didn't realise was uh, what was just around the corner for me, and that was the copy edit. Now, this is a screenshot um, of um, some of the copy edited pages. Um, I'll just to give you a bit of a key, red equals the um, editor's notes and blue equals the tears of the author. Now, this is a much more forensic look at the book. Um, and this was done by my beautiful, wonderful editor, Genevieve Buzo. Um, so she was looking at the language, at continuity errors, inconsistencies, loose ends in the plot. It was a real deep dive. I think you can probably guess, guess that from that screenshot. I often describe this stage as being a masterclass in my own writing. I learned so much about my strengths and my foibles and my quirks. Um, for example, that my characters are always sighing and looking down at their hands or feet or the ground while harboring tight feelings in their chests. Seriously, so many characters uh, in, in the earlier versions of this book did that. Um, I must walk around with a tight feeling in my chest looking at the ground. It's amazing I don't run into more things. Okay, so then, then we enter the proofreading stage. And this is where you all stop and um, just in awe of my Photoshop skills because um, I've drawn some glasses on this stock photo. So it looks a bit more like me. Um, the proofreading stage... Um, in my case, or the case of the spill, was actually done by an external proofreader and, and not my editor. And it was really good because we really needed another set of eyes because by that stage, Genevieve and I were both far too close. Um, so this is the last chance you have to make any real changes. Um, although most of the big changes would have been done in the previous um, phases. But um, here's a brief diary I kept during the proofreading stage. Day one, there's really not that many changes. Day three, why are there so many changes? Day seven, the timeline is completely wrong. Day eight, oh, sorry, day nine, my words are setting like concrete. Day 12, I don't even know what a comma is anymore. So yes, that was pretty intense. I also managed to um, get married um, in between the copy editor and the proofreading stage, and I would really not recommend anyone do that, although, I'm really happy with my book and I'm really happy. I was really happy with my wedding and my subsequent marriage, which continues to this day. Thank goodness. Um, despite the fact that I tried to do a copy edit and a proof read on either side of um, our wedding. Um, 
So then we, I sent back the proofread pages and I waited and waited. And then a global health crisis happened. Some of you may have heard of COVID-19. And I genuinely started to believe that my book might not get printed and that the paper would be used for toilet paper instead. And then one day in late April, a box arrived. And here is what happened. Very, very slowly though. It's stuck there, Indy. I think it's not. It's like Back to the Future. Hey, George, this just arrived. Uh, <laughs> what is it? It's, it's for you, Mr. McFly. It's for no, you, Mr. McFly. It's, it's for you. Oh. What is it? What is it? what it's like to hold your first ever book proper book I should say to that five-year-old version of myself in your hands when you're almost 50 years old you're reduced to a child I think later in the video I actually jumped up and down for joy but I'm not sharing that bit with you thankfully all right so here we are the spill the spill here it is this book um the elevator pitch for the book um, that I gave Penguin when I entered was no two people ever experience or remember the same thing in the same way, especially when they're sisters. So the first thing people ask me when um, about the book is, does it really come with a free cup of tea? And after we establish that is actually not the case, I get them to think about the logistics and the costs, additional costs that that would involve. Um, then we move on and then they want to know after I've done my elevator pitch and said it's about sisters, they say, what inspired the book? And the answer is a really complicated one because um, there's so many things that inspired this book as, that inspire any creative work. It's like the most complex um, recipe you'll ever see, just so many different ingredients. But if I had to choose one hero ingredient, it would be this car crash I was in when I was about 10. And I remember when we were waiting for the ambulance that I looked over at the car and I, I saw that it looked fine. Um, um, it was on its side and it looked like I thought, oh, we'll, we'll be able to drive that home. Um, and then later when we saw it in the wrecking yard where it had been towed, I realised it completely totaled. And I think the accident was a bit like that for me. At the time, you know, I walked away with just a couple of stitches and, you know, my mum was fine and my sister was fine. Um, they were the other two people in the car. Um, but actually I'm still feeling the impact of that car accident to this very day. And I, I decided I'd, I'd like to explore those kind of moments, small and large upon in which an entire life can kind of turn or pivot. There's that word again. Um, so I, I began to imagine two fictitious sisters and their mother in the car accident. And I wondered like, where have they come from? Where are they going? Why did they crash? And what happened next? And here's the obligatory fuzzy felt tableau of the opening um, chapter of the, um, of the spill. Um, so uh, you can see the car's upended. Tina, the mother, is um, drinking at the Bruce Rock pub. And the two sisters, Nicole and Samantha, are rushing to greet their father, Craig, who's just driven all the way from Perth to pick them up. So in the spill, we have three main themes. I'll go through these pretty quickly. One is sisters, 
which I touched on a little bit, I, I find the sister relationship the most fascinating of all the family dynamics. I have two sisters and a lot of my friends have sisters. And over the years, like a bower bird, I've kind of collected all those little shiny blue stories about sisters, stories of miscommunication, misunderstandings, but also stories of like great love and loyalty. Second theme is memory. I'm, I'm, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Now I've gone, see what? That was far too much information too quickly. Spoilers. Um, I am, um, I'm fascinated with how there's usually a huge difference between how we experience things at the time and how we remember those things later. So over the time, we tend to kind of fictionalize our memories, a bit like my copy editing process, you know, where leaving out details and adding sort of small embellishments and, and kind of basically getting them in line with the narratives that we like to tell ourselves about our lives. Um, so that was memory. And then alcoholism, there's no spoiler, um, there's no surprise here because you've already seen this. But anyway, I was interested in examining um, alcoholism in, you know, our society, but, but I didn't want to do it in a judgy way. I didn't set out to write a book about alcoholism. It was through some of the characters that I began to explore it and do a bit more research. Um, I didn't want to do a black and white sort of alcohol is bad polemic because I don't think alcohol is always bad. Um, I think people have a real spectrum. There's a spectrum of kind of experiences or relationships with the bottle. I wanted to kind of explore those further. So how did I choose to tell this story? I chose to tell it in a way that is like a jigsaw puzzle of a club sandwich. Um, now you're probably wondering what, what the hell, she, what does she mean? What does she mean by this? Um, let's go into that in a little bit more detail. So with the club sandwich, I had this idea of starting the book immediately after the accident and then ending the book with the time just before the accident and with the accident itself as the very midpoint. So if you think about the book like a club sandwich, they're the three chapters that the layers of bread. I then wanted to have a kind of a present day narrative. So this is, this is sort of, you know, in the present day, the two sisters are now grown up and their mother, Tina, has just passed away. That's not really a spoiler because we know that from the second chapter. Um, and then I wanted to punctuate those... Um, those present day chapters with chapters from the past, which is the lettuce, tomato and mayonnaise, and slowly build up a picture or sandwich of how the two sisters in the accident were impacted um, and, and how they became who they became. And you may be pleased to know that the club sandwich metaphor ends here. We enter another one, which is the jigsaw metaphor. Um, so with those past chapters, I treated, treated them like bits of a jigsaw puzzle. So in my head, my, my memories are like a huge box of unconnected jigsaw pieces, which I occasionally kind of am able to sort of fit together. And so I felt like a really good literary device. Um, so I wanted to hand the reader one piece at a time from different parts of the puzzle so they're slowly able to see the large picture. So how did I manage to write this? Well, it's time for another spreadsheet, of course. Um, on the left-hand side, the columns allowed me to look at the chapters in the order that they appeared in the book or in chronological order, in the order that they happened um, in this imaginary world of mine. Um, and the book is made up of a hundred tiny mysteries. So the blurred bit, because I didn't want to give any spoilers to anyone who hadn't read the book, 
um, was a way of tracking which mystery was introduced, progressed or resolved in each chapter to make sure that every chapter was working hard enough to earn its place in the larger story. Oh my God, something very wrong with my mouse today. So, and then on the right, I kept track of things like the characters' ages and where they were living at the time. Um, I had to make this spreadsheet because there was actually just too much information for me to hold in my head and still function like a human being. Um, now, now we're in, in summary. Um, so to just summarise, The Spill is about sisters, it's about memory, it's about alcoholism, and it's like a sandwich jigsaw managed by a giant overcomplicated spreadsheet. Um, please borrow it from one of the Marian, uh, City of Marion libraries or buy it from your local bookshop because they really need your business. And this is where I say... Thank you for having me, City of Marion Libraries. And this is where I stop sharing my screen so I don't embarrass myself anymore. <laughs> and I come back to you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you made me hungry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially since you got to see the sandwich slide twice. It was like double the, uh, the insult there for your hunger. I know. So now we do have a question here from Jane. She says, thanks, Imbi. I loved The Spill. Why do you think this story has resonated with so many people? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, uh, I've got these other two manuscripts. People have said, what, what, is, what do you think the thing is about The Spill that has got this one over the line and not the other two? And because, you know, they deal with a lot of similar themes and they have the same kind of blend of humour and heart. Um, but I think really it was the sister thing because I just remember the first time I did that elevator pitch in a room full of um, people at the first time I visited the Penguin um, Random House Australia offices in Sydney. And the minute I sort of said, especially when they're sisters, the entire room went, ooh. And that was the first time I got kind of twigged and went, oh, I think, you know, everybody, people either have a sister or they know sisters and they kind of knows how messy and complex those relationships are. So I think... I think that's a real key thing. And, you know, without tooting my own horn, um, I, think, I think one of the things I really wanted to show in the book is sort of, I don't know, I wanted to treat all the characters with some sort of generosity and kindness and try and show that behind all of those sort of family stories that we tell ourselves and tell each other, there's often another side of the story that doesn't get told. And, for example, there's an ongoing joke about Pritikin scones. And I think if anyone has ever been on the Pritikin diet, they'll realise there's actually not a lot to joke about there. But um, uh, the Pritikin scone is, um, yeah, this, this just of in-joke in the family, but it's actually a really painful memory for one of the, one of the sisters. Um, and that's one of the stories that is in, in the actual book. So this idea that, um, yeah, these sort of stories that we can be so flippant about, um, but they can have this kind of pain, um, attached to them. Um, I, I, I hope it's sort of people are reconsidering the, their, their own family stories and maybe thinking, oh, maybe I should ask, you know, someone, the other people involved, what their experience of, of this story or this memory was before it's too late. Great. So were the main characters based on real people in your life? No, that, um, look, I, I think people said, oh, so which sister are you? Because I've got two sisters. Um, 
I am both the sisters because I'm a megalomaniac and I wanted to write a book that was basically um, about me. Um, no, but I, I used this character and I was in when I was 10. The two ways in which that accident really affected me um, as the starting point for both sisters and then they quickly became their own people. Um, so uh, one of the sisters becomes very sort of anxious and needs to control everything um, and that definitely was me um, and the other sister has real trouble expressing her desire or making a decision because she's worried that you know whatever decision she makes is going to have this sort of disastrous impact on the rest of her life so she's kind of scared to put forward her own desires um, and I think that was me for a very large chunk of my life and even to this day I have some sort of um, I can be a little bit hesitant about making big decisions um, so yes and then like yeah everybody else is it's like those identikit kind of um, pictures where you're kind of borrowing someone's eyes and someone's nose and someone's you know sense of humor so there's a lot of the people I know in those characters but ultimately like they're their own people I really do feel like they are um, real um, I spent so much time with them and there are some characters that I just loved writing and loved you know spending time with and then there were other characters and if you have read the book I'll just say one word Darren um, that was great character to write actually though um, he's a really bad boyfriend and I enjoyed kind of um, making a composite of all the bad boyfriends that I've ever had and that my friends have ever had and making this really horrible person <laughs> um, but um, I just want to say now to the two Darrens that I actually know in my life that I sincerely apologize for using the name Darren without thinking of you <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's actually an interesting story with the name Darren because originally I did name him after an ex-boyfriend from high school. And then I quickly realised um, when it was going to be published that uh, there was a good chance that that ex-boyfriend's family might actually um, read the book and that they would think that's what I thought of him. And so I kind of um, did this last minute change of name, but without realizing that actually I had two friends called Darren that might have the same objection. And, um, and lo, here I am today, probably facing one is actually, you know, um, he's a barrister. I think he's a, you know, he's actually very high up. He's probably mounting a legal case against me as we speak. I loved Tina, by the way. She was so lovable for me. Yeah, she's a fun, fun character. Um, uh, my my mum, my mum, um, she's retired now, but she was an actress, and I always imagined that my mum would really uh, play a great Tina. Um, but I have to say, also for legal reasons, that my mother in the accident that I was in in um, when I was ten, my mother was not drunk at the time, and there was no question of whether or not my mother was drunk at the time. Okay. <laughs> Um, that was the, actually the, I did a little, um, a reading of that first chapter where the mum's in, in the pub and there's this question about whether she was drunk. And, um, that was the first my mother ever actually experienced of the book. And, um, I'd forgotten that I kind of based it on the car accident from my childhood. And so she flipped out thinking that the entire book was me cannibalizing and uh, exposing all of our family secrets, but no, alas, that's a future book. That might segue into this next question. Uh, the alcoholism ran true. What kind of research did you do to get it right? So the yeah, that's that's a good question. I um, and as I said in the in my very long, um, possibly very boring PowerPoint presentation, I 
I um, didn't set out to write a book um, making any commentary on alcoholism, but I mean, it is pervasive, it's everywhere. And we have a kind of casual attitude to alcohol, you know, particularly in Australia, um, where, you know, I, I, well, is it wine o'clock already? Or, you know, I'm drinking a whole bottle of gin and it's, it is funny, but I also know that um, alcohol actually causes a lot of pain and a lot of problems for a lot of people and, and not just the people who are drinking, but the people who love them. And so I, I did a lot of research about what alcohol, especially when consumed at the level that Tina consumes it. And again, that's not a spoiler. We, we kind of know that she's um, died from liver failure or liver failure related illness um, in, in that second chapter. Um, so yeah, so like, so what would the body, what, what, how, how would her, that have manifested itself in her body? And, um, and then also just like reflecting on some of the, there is a character in the book who, um, who, you know, uh, at a time when, you know, everybody's drinking, especially sort of the end of high school, isn't drinking. And that's kind of this social stigma. And I know the times in my life, you know, I'm not a heavy drinker, but I have had times when I've been pregnant or breastfeeding where I haven't drunk. And particularly when you're not visibly um, pregnant or visibly breastfeeding, although I'd never breastfed in a pub or a bar. But anyway, um, that, um, that people are sort of a bit suspicious, like, well, what do you mean you don't want to drink? Are you sure you don't want to drink? Have a drink. Um, so there's this kind of gentle coerciveness around us, this sort of pressure to drink, even like I'm in my late 40s now and um, I occasionally still feel that. I'm like, actually, no, I don't want to drink and please don't pressure me into having a drink. So it was really interesting to kind of reflect on all of those things. Um, I don't think it's by any means a sort of like educational pamphlet about do's and don'ts around alcoholism, but... Um, or alcohol consumption, but I hope it, hopefully it's given people some stuff to reflect on. Great. Um, Helen wants to know, did it take you a long time to construct the spreadsheets and was it a difficult process? Um, I am a natural spreadsheet person. Like you give me any excuse to make a spreadsheet and I will make a spreadsheet because I love spreadsheets. Um, so the spreadsheet itself, I mean, it changed as, as I kind of work, worked through the book and kind of, you know, realized what the problems were and what, you know, things like I was just losing track of, of how old people were. And, um, and also sort of that thing that I was talking about and making sure that each chapter was kind of earning its place in the story. I, a very early draft was was much more disjointed and I think may have made the early readers physically ill because they were being thrown around back and forth. Um, so I really wanted to make sure that everything was sort of somehow linked to the other chapters. So there's all these little tiny threads um, that are used to stitch them all together. Um, so yes, I mean, the whole writing process, I started in July, 2017. And so I had won the prize by, I'd submitted in November 2019. So that's almost a year and a half. And then, you know, a few months later, I actually won. So, um, yeah, I, I, I worked pretty hard on it. Um, um, all, all the while actually writing short stories and kind of feeling like I was moving away from writing novels. And, yeah, and then that all changed, obviously. And so here I am with an actual book. <laughs> Still very exciting. Awesome. Um, looking at that cover, because Jane has asked, how much involvement did you have in the cover art? It is reminiscent of the Japanese painting The Great Wave. 
Yeah, I, I felt that too. And there is a character, as you probably know in the book, who did spend quite a bit of time in Japan, as he likes to remind us every five minutes. And um, yeah, for people who haven't read the book, uh, it's uh, Darren again. Anyway, Darren, he's the he's the favourite child. Um, so the, the cover, there's, there's one funny story about the cover. Uh, there's always a funny story with me. But um, when, I, when I went to Penguin Random House Australia's office in Sydney for the first and only time, um, um, I'm here in Melbourne, so um, that's not exactly an easy place to drop by. They did ask me, have you any thoughts about the cover? And I, I really did not. I did not have any thoughts. I could never imagine what kind of cover it would have. Um, so I made a joke. I said, um, uh, no, I don't really have any thoughts, except that I'd really like my name in huge gold letters, and I'd like my name to be bigger than the title. And lo! It happened. It came to pass. Um, it, there was, you know, um, quite a long time. It's like six, six, seven months later. Um, I, they did ask me seriously, like, what, what did I like or what didn't I like? And so I went to my local bookshop and um, took sort of, you know, creepy stalker type photos of covers that I liked and didn't like. Um, I did explain to the um, when people's working there what I was doing. I wasn't just taking pictures so I could then buy them on book depository. Um, but yeah, so in that process, that was really interesting because I'd never actually sort of, I always knew that I had an aversion to any book that had the, you know, from the major motion picture still on the cover because I always liked to feel that I was in with the book on the ground floor before it became a major motion picture. Um, that was a sort of a hangover from my snobby university days. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was a really interesting exercise. I don't know how much they listened to it, but I did love the cover and... Um, um, the minute I saw it, it was the only one I saw and it pretty much was exactly like that. I think the only thing that changed is I got this little thing, which is called a roundel. A round, it's a, a roundel. So I feel very pleased that I have a roundel. That roundel looks amazing on that front cover. Great. Um, Paula would like to know what authors do you love and have impacted on your writing? Um, that's a, another good question. Um, I, like, from a very early age, um, I was always very, um, a very avid reader. Um, and my stepmother used to sort of drip me, feed me novels, not always appropriate novels, um, age appropriate. Uh, she gave me the story of O when I was 15. If anyone's read that, that's quite a ride, quite a ride to go on when you're 15. Um, but from an early age, I really loved um, Kurt Vonnegut and I really loved... Um, John Irving. I was completely captured by the Flowers in the Attic series. Um, that was at slightly early age. Um, and then through university sort of um, had a big love affair with Jeanette Winterson and um, Margaret Atwood. And, you know, I've always read very widely thus, you know, I think Margaret Atwood and Flowers in the Attic are probably opposite ends of the literary spectrum. But, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, everything I've read is sort of like whether it's sort of informed my practice or sort of, I think even reading bad books is good because it makes you think, well, why aren't I connecting to this? And, you know, sometimes it's just that the book isn't for you. Um, and that's something that as a published author, I'm having to think about more because, you know, when I do see a negative review on Goodreads, which I, I try not to look at Goodreads because it just hurts my heart, um, just kind of accepting that you can't write a book that everybody's going to love, you're going to have to um, accept that. Oh, because if you did, I mean, what's the, there's a Kurt Vonnegut, um, Vonnegut um, 
quote which is like you know you have to when you write you write with one person in mind as your reader because if you open the world um your window and make love to the world you're going to catch pneumonia so you know you're basically just going to screw yourself <laughs> if you try to please too many people and um yeah so that was that was quite a journey i don't think i maybe i, I did answer the question yes i did answer that question and then i went on a tangent Indeed. Um, a school feels like it would make a great TV miniseries. Has there been any interest in the rights to the book? Um, very uh, early on, um, I got an email from a production company who were looking for books set in Western Australia. Um, they hadn't read it at that point, wasn't sort of even close to um, being ready for people to read. Um, and I had just got an agent, so I was really thrilled to be able to pass that question on to her because I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I think I think it's been sent to people in in the industry, um, and uh, I don't think there's been any bites yet. But I don't think people are really feeling very confident about mounting new um, productions right now. So, um, but I'm hoping one day because I, I mean, I do. I I grew up in a theatre family, so I spent a lot of time backstage at the theatre and. Um, or in rehearsal rooms, like endless hours of just listening to rehearsals and also seeing a lot of, again, age inappropriate plays. Um, but I, I do, as a result, I kind of write quite close to, to scripts because dialogue is really important to me um, and it's the thing that I enjoy writing the most. I'm not so great on descriptions of rooms and I really hate describing what people wear. Um, and I think I've only done it like three times in the whole book. I, I really think... I like to leave the casting of people up to the reader. Um, and, you know, um, there was, with my editor was always saying to me, you know, oh, it'd be good to know what the person looks like here when they say this really important thing or, you know, what, what the tone of voice might be. And I'd be like, well, that's up to the actors, surely. But, um, but I did pay attention to um, those key moments and try to give a little bit more clue to the, to the readers. But it is... Um, yeah, I feel like it, and it's very, it's very kind of clear in my mind how it looks, and it'd be really interesting to see how another creative team would would bring that to life, and whether or not that would match my version in my head, um, or you know, like Leanne Moriarty and Big Little Lies, if it would be like they would transpose it to a completely different part of the world. I mean, I I, I often wonder how she must feel about that, and if she feels like the essence of her story is still there. I think it is. Um, and in fact, in some ways, I prefer the series, but it's, um, that's not to say I don't think the book is good. That's another rambling answer. <laughs> well, we know Nicole is tall from your description. Oh, that's true. I did describe tall. Yeah, there you go. I gave you that. I think I said some some point someone had long hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've just got one last question here for tonight, Imbi, um, and that is what are you reading at the moment? Um, okay, I'm reading um, a debut novel called No Small Shame by um, a writer called Christine Bell. Um, and that's a sort of uh, historical fiction um, about a woman, I think it's around the turn of the century, I'm very early in um, and only reading it in really small um, bursts at the moment. I'm also listening to um, oh, The Adversary by Ronnie Scott. I want to say Ronnie Scott. It, that is so... That's a really, I, I always have an audio book and a, a hardcover book and I'm finding at the moment with lockdown and um, that I'm having much 
better luck with the audiobook because I can walk and listen. Although there's some books that just don't lend themselves to audiobooks. You want to be able to stop and go back and reread and sort of just sit with the language a bit. But um, The Adversary is just really fun. And um, yeah, they're all my friends now, the people in that book. So they with me while I'm cooking and, you know, while I'm cleaning and while I'm doing my walks. So yeah, that's what I'm reading at the moment. Excellent. You might just finish one more question. So are you writing anything else at the moment? Um, I've had no time for writing. Like with, with lockdown, that first month, you know, uh, I was really going to punch the next person who said that Shakespeare wrote King Lear in lockdown um, circumstances because that was really, <laughs> really having trouble focusing on anything for more than five minutes. Um, and then pretty much since then, I've been working on the publicity for this book. I mean, that's something that I didn't anticipate is how intense it is to have a book out in the world and everyone wants you to talk about it and um and you just find yourself saying the same things again and again and it kind of kills creativity a bit um um and also you know you're just exhausted so because i've still been working and i've got five teenagers in my life i've got three sons and two stepdaughters and they keep us my husband and i on our toes um so the answer is I'm not writing anything at the moment, but I'm, I, ha I did get some chance to go back to my second manuscript before the publicity started in earnest and did some work on that. So I'm hoping to return to that. And there's an idea for a fourth book, which has something to do with postcards that I'm really, I just really want to write, but I, I feel like I'm going to just have to wait a little longer. But, you know, watch this space. There may be more books from me. I hope there will be. Excellent. I look forward to reading those. And I also look forward to reading your earnest and probably quite, <laughs> quite terrible novella. I do not think you or any other person will ever be able to read that. Um, maybe I, I know occasionally like writers get together and, you know, share. Um, there's the thing called Bad Diaries um, Salon, which um, where they read from their diaries. But I've also heard of other writers reading um early bad works so maybe one day i can share some of that earnest but quite terrible novella stuff but yes for the moment that shall remain Th thankfully that you know the floppy disk that was on is now long gone and i've just got this one printed version and you know someday i might just fall like you know, trip and fall while i'm holding it it might sort of fall into a fire but um for the moment it's uh, safe at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of a drawer well, the spells still is definitely not a terrible read. I've read it also. It's probably one of my top ten. And Jane, who had tuned in tonight, she actually said it's one of the best books she's ever written. Sorry. So. Oh. <laughs> um, well, maybe Jane did write it. Um, no, uh, thank you. That's a really nice thing to say. Um, um, really, um, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you so much, Indy, for joining us this evening all the way from Melbourne. Uh, Indy's name wanted me to just encourage you to shop local, support local business, and purchase your copy of The Skill from your nearest independent bookstore. And please keep following the Marion Library's Facebook page, the City of Marion website, and check your inbox to be kept up to date on all of the upcoming Library Through the Lens presentations and workshops. And if you haven't already registered, next Tuesday morning we welcome Dr. Rob Morrison, former co-host of The Beloved Curiosity Show, which reached cult status when it aired on television screens across Australia and around the world during the 70s and 80s. Rob will take us behind the scenes and science in his memoir, Curious Recollections. 
We hope you'll join us then and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you, Indy. Thanks so much, Tracy, and thank you to the City of Marion Libraries. I really appreciate this opportunity to bore you all senseless. <laughs> it wasn't boring at all. <laughs> We're just saying that, but thank you for saying that. <laughs> thank you. All right, bye.